The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the UC Board of Regents, or the janitorial staff at the CPAC meeting in Orlando, Florida. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 2nd, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guests bring their creative work and thoughts to you. First, Herbert Siguenza, member of the Culture Clash Troupe, will speak about developing and appearing in his solo performance, A Weekend with Pablo Picasso, streaming this month on Caltech Live. In the second segment, KUCI Public Affairs host Nathan Callahan will take us from the Fairness Doctrine to Rush Limbaugh and the Media Swamp to where our body politic might recover. We'll be right back after a station break. My first guest is Herbert Siguenza, who's appearing in his solo performance that he created, A Weekend with Pablo Picasso. It will be streaming on demand March 6th through the 21st at Caltech Live. Herbert Siguenza was originally trained as an artist and printmaker at California College of Art and Crafts. He later served as an art director at La Raza Silk Screen Center, La Raza Graphics in San Francisco. From there, he moved into performing arts and became involved with Teatro Gusto. Herbert Seguenza is a co-founder of Culture Clash, active now and appearing around the country and beyond for 36 years with Rick Salinas, Richard Montoya, among several others that are no longer with them. Independently of the group, Herbert Seguenza has also acted in, written and produced roles such as Cantin Plas, a Weekend with Pablo Picasso, the subject of today's interview. His other works include Steel Heaven and El Henry, an adaptation of Shakespeare's Henry IV and Manifest Destinitas. In 2016, Herbert Seguenza began a three-year playwright residency at San Diego Rep as part of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation's National Playwright Residency Program. Herbert Seguenza was also involved in the making of Pixar's animated film, Coco, maintaining its cultural integrity and offering some voices. Herbert Seguenza's many UC Irvine contributions include the Herbert Seguenza Project, the winter of quarter of 2010, performance of Culture Clash's film, Searching for Aslan, several brown bag series, and he's currently doing a workshop with the graduate actors this year for his play, El Henry, the full performance of which has been paused due to COVID restrictions. He comes to us today from his home in San Diego. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Herbert Siguenza. Thank you for having me, Claudia. Thank you for that uh, long intro. <laughs> well, that's it's even longer, but I just took some, but I, I didn't want to really cut out anything because every one of those means a lot. Well, first, thank you for capturing so much of Pablo Picasso in your marvel of a performance, in your writing and your acting and live painting. Well painting. done. Thank you. Thank you. It took my, it took me my whole life to create this piece. 
Well, it's like some of those things that um, the writings that you lifted from Pablo Picasso, you've been doing this play all your life, it seems. Well, yes. I, I want to ask, I, I understand some through lines that I took away from this are canvas and creation. And I, when I look at the canvas, I couldn't resist noticing all the canvases laying around on the set. There's, mm. the, there's the, the literal forms of the canvas that you're painting to in live as we we're talking about. There's the clay, there's the sheets that are hanging outside. There's the, clay, the white espadrilles shoes for your daughter. There's, yes. the, there's the fresh loaves of bread, including the yes. hands of niece. That was, that was really stellar. And the, I would include the yet to be read newspaper that's delivered, the yet to be lit gold vases, and the next incoming phone call. There's all those canvases laying around. Am I missing <laughs> some? No, you're right. You're right. Those are uh, those are all props in the, the of the film that you're talking about. But uh, they are also very uh, important to Picasso. All those are elements in his life when he was just living in the south of France. You know, his cigarettes, his wine, his his canvases. You know, his his uh, his pets. Everything was. Uh, was a miracle to him and he enjoyed life to the fullest. And that's what attracted me to him. When I was a little boy, I saw a picture book, a photography book of him, photographed by Douglas Duncan. He had access to Picasso for six months and lived with him and took pictures of his daily life. And when I saw this book at the age of seven, it, it, it had a profound effect on me. It really influenced who I would be. And I told my mom, hey, you know, when I grow up, I want to be like this old man. <laughs> and I guess I did. I guess I did. When I turned 50, I went to the San Diego Repertory Theater and I told them I want to write a play based off this book. A play just about spending time with the with the master of uh, modern art. Nothing more. Um, the play is just a, I guess, a swatch of life, a weekend with Pablo Picasso. I mean, what would he say if you were in his house? You know, what would he talk about? He would, of course, do art, but he would talk about uh, social issues and his uh, personal issues with women and his kids and all that. So it's um, it's a lovely play where it just it's just a slice of life. So do I understand your script? You are a one man performing this. Are, yes. are you, you are are literally is everything that you utter something that he had written that since he had so much well, he's left behind? Yes, for the most part, yes. I what I wrote was just really the storyline. Uh, I, I invented this this uh, fake uh, weekend and this fake commission just for the just to create a storyline, some dramatic tension there. But all the philosophy, all the things he talks about art and his life, those are all from him. Either he said them or other people said he said them. Uh, this is the research I did. Yes. And it's certainly the kind of the DNA of Culture Clash and Herbert Siguenza that the personal is political and those are the ones that you lifted for your script of what he has left behind. Yes, yes. I mean, there's much, much more. I, I did a lot of research. I had to cut, you know, I basically edited down to what I thought, felt was important and what's important to me. There's no such thing as a, a documentary that is unbiased, you know. It's like a documentary where I basically uh, edited what I thought was not necessary and left what was necessary. And you mentioned at seven when you were exposed to him. And isn't that when 
I think he's he's starting to becoming that really um, uh, this prodigy that his father yeah. also an artist. So that's sort of a convergence of ages, though. Correct? Yes, yes. He was very talented, and uh, at the age of fourteen, he he said he had surpassed his father's uh, talent by then. And, and didn't his, his father stop? And his father stopped. He gave him <sighs> brushes and never painted again. Yeah. Which is different. And so another uh, sort of a timeline uh, you're here is that you tell us about how you decided to use 1957 as the setting for May weekend with Pablo Picasso. Yes, I, I, I chose 1957, that era when he was living in the south of France, because he was um, he was pretty content by then. He was married to Jacqueline Roque and he had kids and he was pretty much a superstar. He really had no, he wasn't a starving artist in Paris. He was really a, already a very wealthy artist and was selling his art at very uh, high prices. So he really wasn't hungry anymore. But then, um, but then Russia, the USSR invaded uh, Czechoslovakia in, 1950, in, in 1956, uh, Bulgaria, I'm sorry, Hungary, Hungary. Hungary, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hungary, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of another invasion. <laughs> There's a few. There's a yeah. few. 1956, uh, the Soviets in, um, invaded Hungary, and um, this was this upset Picasso very deeply. It upset a lot of intellectuals and artists that were communists in Europe because it was a unilateral invasion, and they just did not uh, agree with it. In fact, he wrote letters to the Central Committee denouncing the invasion, but they they did not care. So. Um, so I wanted to put that as a background, as a political background tension. So he's trying to he's trying to figure out how does it, how does an artist respond to this to these horrors, you know? And many people wanted him to paint something as powerful as Guernica, which he painted in 1937. That was the the bombing of the town of Guernica by the fascists in 1937, which you know is is probably the most famous political painting ever, but he could not recreate that anymore. He says, how can I, how can I paint another Guernica? There's just no way I can do that. So he was very upset. He didn't know how to respond to the, to this invasion of Hungary. And that's what I talk about. And I, I really am glad you included in that, those are inevitably undeniably must be his words when he's telling us, telling patrons mm -hmm. and telling the mm -hmm. visitor that when he was approached by a Nazi officer, you know, mm -hmm. putting Guernica down, a copy of Guernica, obviously not the, mm -hmm. you know, and saying, did you do this at meaning, did you, did you do this? And, mm -hmm. and, and Picasso, as you say in there, I'm not given anything of this play away, mm -hmm. but as he says no, back no. to the Nazi officer, no, you did it. And so that's, that's probably how personal his political was. He knew how to respond. Yes. He must've responded in that, that rapid yes. way in that setting, which was probably more than tense. Well, yeah, and Guernica was very personal to him because that was his homeland, you know, Spain. Yes. And once Franco and the fascists took over Spain, uh, Picasso never ever went back to his, his homeland. He became a French citizen and was in, living in exile through the rest of his life. Um, one, one interesting tidbit, it's not in the play, but one interesting thing is that Picasso never came to the United States, ever. Is, that, is there a reason for that? He, he, did, he didn't want to stop working. That's, that was his reason. 
he really didn't leave uh, his uh, studio that much. I mean, he went to, you know, he went to bullfights and things like that that were close by, but he, he hated to travel. He just did not like to stop working. Okay, and that, that comes through. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Herbert Siguenza, actor, writer, and performer as Pablo Picasso in the play, A Weekend with Pablo Picasso, which will be streaming starting March 6th, going to March 21st at Caltech Live. We'll have the details about when you can join that. And you may know Herbert Siguenza from his work in the extensive repertoire of Culture Clash. So I don't know if I missed it because there was a lot, there was so much to follow up in this play, but who so is much. the my? Yeah, the, the, the audience, the audience becomes the third, the second character. It, it, Picasso is really uh, talking directly to us, the viewer. And I think that's kind of unique, you know, where I- Super unique. Another wall. canvas. Yeah, another canvas, exactly. So, um, you know, I break the wall, uh, the fourth wall in the theater, but I'm also breaking it uh, when we filmed it. We, I also direct my, my, my monologue towards the okay. camera. So, Picasso knew how to master his fame. He, I mean, he made lots of choices and decisions with what uh, prioritizing his time, taking commissions, turning down commissions, taking the phone call, not taking the phone call. So your performance clearly fleshes that out at, at that and that tension. Um, but you do make the case that he is one of the earliest rock stars in your performance. Yeah, he really was. He was, uh, you know, they wanted him to be involved in, in things. Um, you know, he, like I said, he was a, he was a humanist. He was also in the communist party. So the communist party wanted him to, you know, uh, paint pictures, paint canvases that would, you know, benefit them or, you know, add his signature to manifestos. They really wanted to use his, his celebrity to their cause. And this really, uh, he was really reluctant to do that. So the, and the, the tension of celebrity to, to the extent you understand the man, it doesn't really undermine his essential creativity. That's a fine, fine, hard line not to have cross. Yeah, well, you, you gotta remember that he was famous in the 50s, 60s, you know, way before social media. And so, you know, you couldn't do that now, you know, everything is just so uh, out there now, but back then you could still have some sort of privacy. Um, he would complain that there'd be tourist buses going by uh, his house. And, you know, the tourist guy, guide would say, that's where Pablo Picasso lives. Oh, he's in this studio right now. And he said he felt like a monkey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's in there, but I'm also thinking, Herbert about the celebrity that he he was very aware that he could he could easily knock off his own like he misplaces something a, a commission that somebody wanted yeah. to pick up so he can he he knocks one out but but yeah. you know, his checks never getting cashed or I mean I yeah. I've also heard stories where he'll just doodle on a napkin in a in yeah. one of the bar the tabernas nearby but right. so that yeah. I mean he's fully aware of how much cachet he has but yes. it doesn't interfere. Do you think, did it ever really interfere with his creativity? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he, he understood that he was a celebrity, but he, he, he didn't care about that really. You know, so, he, he really never took advantage of it. I don't think. 
but it is it there is tension in in those things and where where yeah. he would uh, where his work again how, how he'd be upset him? yeah he'd be upset the only time he was upset is that people would keep him from work right even though he um he, he, they said that he was very friendly and very gracious to his friends. But if you weren't his friend and you were uh, losing his time, he would be very upset at you. So the the latest presentation, because you've done this for quite a long time. And does yes. it keep changing? Well, I keep aging. And, oh. that, you know, no, really, that's, you know, I, I've aged into the uh, part. I'm aging into the part still. And I think it's gotten a lot deeper and a lot better. I've got, you know, I've, I've become a better actor in 10 years and I've also become a better painter in 10 years. So I think this reflects that. I think this is, um, the film is probably a, ref, a reflection of where I am right now. And I think it's at its best, it's at its best uh, interpretation right now. So, and about the, the live painting, Herbert, I, you know, it just takes such chutzpah to, to and, and mm. a fearlessness to be able to do that. And if we don't read about that in some sort of dramaturge piece or some mm. sort of promotional item, I don't, I don't know that in the age of photoshopping and and mm -hmm. the you know green screens and everything, I'm not yeah. sure people really would understand that's your work. I'm really working on. It. Well, that's the difference between live theater and a film piece, right? I mean. If you come see the live show, yeah, you, you're gonna you're gonna see me paint right in front of you. There's no denying that. Of course, in on film, I do paint in front of the camera, but you know, but it's hard. You know, you could either believe it or not because it's you know, it's so easy to uh, cheat when when you when you film something. Right, right. How many times did you have to practice the signature on the canvas? <laughs> uh, you know, not much. Well, like I said, I've been doing this play for ten years, so. It's just, it's second nature now, but every, the whole play is second nature and, and I love it. So the latest presentation, now the season you doing this, uh, mm -hmm. a weekend with Picasso, you produced mm -hmm. under strict COVID protocols. And yeah. I, sh I, though, I sure do wish though, I could be sitting in a Caltech audience with <laughs> your fearless, unflappably pithy messages that are talking about creativity and peace. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great to sit amongst those engineers and the the, the tech yes. titans of the future? Yes, yes. Well, you know, in a year or two, I'll come back and do it live on their stage. I mean, I have no problem doing that. You know, I think okay. that's go. Okay, good. Well, I know. Now, for, for now, I'm very proud of the film and I'm very proud that, you know, people are watching it. I'm so happy Caltech took, uh, took it. And um, it's going to show it to a whole new audience that probably doesn't go to the theater as much. And so this is, uh, this is exciting for me. Well, but I can think of the audience like when we've talked with you all in after a performance, and sometimes you, you will talk about it being uh, that Orange County audiences are, well, at least you said that in earlier years. I think you were probably <laughs> not feeling the same love later on just because we got we got to know your material so well. It wasn't uh -huh. in the earlier years of you're bringing it to Orange County, you'd say, these are better audiences than the ones <laughs> in Berkeley. And we'd always come back and say, because we're hungry for this kind of thing. So I imagine maybe Caltech could just sort of be bitten, just bitten by the kind of the, mm -hmm. the, the qualities that you bring out with the- I hope so, I hope so. Uh, right. I'm currently writing something they might really find uh, exciting. I'm, I'm writing a piece about As um, Isaac Asimov, the writer, Ooh. 
a science fiction writer. And so that'll be my next piece. <laughs> so all those nerdy texts will, will love that piece. And what's the working title? Can you tell us? Yes, it's called Isaac Asimov Grandmaster Funk. Oh, another superstar. Okay, great. Well, I, I want to give a shout out to Michael Alexander because I know he's sort of yes. the, 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 the impresario for culture mm -hmm. and for gathering. Those, both those things really mean a lot to him. And I know he's brought yes. you to grand performances. I've been privileged to see those there downtown LA. And so he's the one that's presenting this. And I want to just run by quickly again, the opening weekend, uh, mm -hmm. well, that there will be two free live talkbacks with my guest Herbert Siguenza on Saturday yes. 6th, March 6th at 7.30, March 7th at 4 p.m. And the mm -hmm. tickets are available at events.caltech.edu forward slash Picasso, of course. So uh, those are details I wanna make sure everybody has. This has been such a joy. I kept my girl fandom, I hope to a minimum. Thank you. <laughs> Herbert Seguenza for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you so much, Claudia. It's been a pleasure. And I hope everyone can uh, support the Caltech and stream uh, Picasso. Thank you. My guest was Herbert Seguenza, actor, writer, and performer as Pablo Picasso in A Weekend with Picasso. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. <laughs>
Volkswagen van. Mix uh -huh. Nuts is a work in progress under a new title. He completed yes. his undergraduate degree at UC Irvine. He uh -huh. comes to us today from his home in Irvine. Welcome finally to Ask a Leader, Nathan Callahan. Well, thank you, Claudia. That was a very generous introduction. I, I, uh, I'm not worthy. Well, you are worthy, and I'm going to run you through your worthy paces here. And why, okay. Nathan, I, my listeners ask, because he is the right person for the job. Looking at the end of the Fairness Doctrine, Rush Limbaugh, and the media swamp with which our body politic must contend. So mm -hmm. we're going to roll back in time, and we're going to talk, it's a little tiny primer on the Fairness Doctrine, and I think well-informed minds can argue whether fairness doctrine is in upper or lower case. I put it up in the, in the upper case because that doctrine mattered a lot. It was introduced in 1949 and formally ended by executive action in the Reagan administration in 1987. And it had two elements to it. It required broadcasters to devote some of their airtime to discussing controversial matters of public interest and to air contrasting views regarding those matters. And stations had latitude as to how to provide the contrasting views and it could be done with news segments or public affairs spots or editorials. It didn't require equal time. That was a separate rule. The end of the federal communications rule has been considered to be a contributing factor to where we are and a possibility of the door opening for the likes of Rush Limbaugh and his medium was mainly radio, but I think he had, he appeared in other kinds of platforms. So to that doctrine, we're gonna talk about how it gave Rush Limbaugh an opening that he didn't have before. And uh, we'll, we'll break it down in other details, but uh, your, your take on where we were at 1987 and into the early 90s, Nathan Callahan. Oh, just first of all, too, there were two corollary rules to the doctrine, too. There was a personal attack rule. So if you were, say, you said something very foul about me, then I would have the opportunity to either send a spokesman or answer them myself uh, on whoever broadcast your personal attack on me. And then there was a political editorial rule uh, that applied when the, the station broadcast editorials endorsing someone and the exact same thing happened that uh, the opposite side of that matter uh, had equal time. So that's just, just something else to get. get and it's, it's critical. It's critical because with the end of that doctrine, and of course, we're going to get a little bit into the social media later uh, that that I'm, we're going to talk about the gray and the, the white and the black areas of all this. But so, and so it mattered. So we're living in a totally different era where those, those checks don't exist. So there's not only unanswered matters, but it's a, like there's persistence in that. So, yeah. um, so that, so we have now Rush Limbaugh's media ecology where he has, He's scorned people. Uh, I, I mean, where to, where to, where to start? He's, he's lied. Well, he, I, think, I think he kind of gave birth, birth to a grievance culture, or at least he was one of the founders of a grievance culture. There, there's a, you know, a political movement of people with grievances rather than positive things. 
And it seemed like Limbaugh tapped into that. Uh, the fairness doctrine, of course, uh, had some uh, effect. The, the retraction of the fairness doctrine did. It gave him more freedom. But I, it, he also was taking advantage of people who would rather complain and blame than do anything proactive. He was taking advantage of, of uh, racists and Oxycontin addicts and misogynists. And uh, I, I think that's really where he got his following from people who had poorer educations and who didn't know anything about civics because it had not been taught anymore at that point in time. But I think it was not a, not just a class sort of a draw of following I'm not, that I'm not saying class, you know, you know, rich people can be stupid. Right. Okay. There you go. Well, cause, cause I think he drew in a lot of his, his following on the entertainment value, the kind of tweaking that the fun and funny that they heard in his messages. So it, um, there's the gray area is like the humor. Is it, is it funny or is it ringing true? It's that means huge, huge gray swath of yeah. um, a media content. Well, he was kind of like the Beavis and Butthead of the right. Uh, he was funny in that way. He would say insulting things. He would say things that really didn't have any, any grounding other than they were aimed at targets, easy targets for people who believed that things were being taken away from them. I, I know we like to think that uh, the uh, fairness doctrine had a lot to do with his popularity. And, and again, I, and not to be classist, but just to say that people who like to think problems through were not attracted to Rush Limbaugh. He and was, he, he was just a loud mouth with a lot of complaints. Well, he had his hand on, uh, hand on the pulse of the, or the, on the amygdala. He knew how yeah. the, the sort of dread that he could stoke and, and tacking in that time in history of our country with the, the ascending resurgence of the lost cause body politic that he could really mine it for all it's worth. Yeah, yeah. Those were sad times, at least to have to hear that, to hear broadcasting turn his way, if you know what I'm saying. Right, well, because there were, there were bodies. There were bodies, there was carnage everywhere. Yeah. And just for, for that period of time, too, uh, even before them, then when we had 24 uh, hour cable news, I think that's another turning point that led to the, the popularity of Rush. There was a lot of time to fill. There was a time when you had a half an hour or an hour newscast at the end of the day. And, they, and then you read a newspaper and that's how you got your news. You got it from several sources of reading and maybe one, uh, one network that you'd choose out of three. But uh, when cable news came into it, you had 24 hours to fill for you know, however many channels you had at the time or how many uh, uh, networks you had at the time. Right. So that it just it became a cacophony and really a... Uh, a desperation to fill time, a repetition factor going on, which Rush was a lot, which Rush really used a lot. It was just, it was every single day you heard him rant about the same things. It was more about his take on it, his material, than it was about 
the actual uh, policy itself. The development, right. And was it like up to three hours he'd have, which is a long oh, show. Yeah. I mean, he was talented at uh, using, <laughs> at, at carrying that time. up a lot of time. And he had a, a good voice for that kind of uh, production. He was a, a, a DJ in Sacramento, I think. And gosh, just the other day, I was listening to him introduce a Michael Jackson song, an old recording of him. And he was good at it. He had a oh. good beat in, he was positive, uh, you know, he, he could hit the right notes and, and you wanted to listen to what was coming up. So in that way, he was very talented. So that was the entertainment that yep. launched him. Yep. The DJs, cause that, that yes. So he filled it up and the, the ditto heads, which were, <laughs> it was a term coined only for his programming, right? The I original so. echo chamber. I believe so. You remember Larry Agron, right? Of course I remember him. <laughs> he was a politician here in the city of Irvine and is today. And is now after, on the council. Many years of uh, serving the city. I, I worked for him during that period of time in the early 80s and 90s. And there was a ditto head who shared the office floor with us. Uh, and every morning he would turn on Rush Limbaugh as loud as he could without being too obnoxious so that we would have to listen to this, you know, and I'm, that's hard. He knew that we were liberals. So uh, he was, you know, trying to get back at us, but he would never confront us with it. He would just turn up Limbaugh. And I think that was part of the allure of Limbaugh because he could speak for these people literally. They didn't have the means themselves to do it. All they had to turn, do is turn up their radio and they'd have this voice shouting what they were feeling. Raising passive, so, passive aggression to a new art. Yeah. Turning, on, turning, on Rush, turning up Rush Limbaugh for other audiences. So one day Jim, who was working with us, doesn't show up for work. Okay. And, and there's, no, there's no Rush Limbaugh. And they, uh, they found Jim's body at the wheel of his Taurus. Remember the Taurus, the Florida Taurus? Yes. He had parked facing a green belt along El Toro Road in Mission Viejo. They found his head in the back seat. He had put a shotgun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. Now, then he left behind three kids and a wife and whatnot. But moral of the story is, the people that Rush Limbaugh representative were troubled people for the most part. People who had things lacking in their lives and people who needed targets to blame for what was lacking in their lives. And apparently Jim ran out of uh, targets to shoot at. So he <gasps> shot the one that was closest to him. I'm going to need to put in a trigger warning for this, that graphic oh, earlier yeah, part. Trigger I, warning for goodness sakes. People put guns to their heads all the time. I know. Well, I'm trigger warning. <laughs> nice pun. I don't, didn't intend for that. So, well, wow. So that's race at all. I mean, this is no, ridiculous, no, really. Come no, we're talking no. about somebody who shot himself. That's okay. That's okay. Who no, was, uh, who we're going to run with it. Upset, uh, who was a man who was upset, who couldn't speak for himself, who was driven to a point where he was, uh, you know, ended his own life because he couldn't deal with his problems. And I think that that's 
true for uh, a lot of people, not that they ended their lives, but that they couldn't uh, get their own lives together enough and Rush gave them power. And that's his media ecology, as you say. Yeah, yeah. For those of you who just joined us, my guest is my radio KUCI colleague. He's a writer, critic, and a radio host. He's uh, including, as I said, here at KUCI. And Nathan Callahan is here to talk about the end of the fairness doctrine and how the media has developed since those days in the late 1980s and in this the post-Rush Limbaugh sort of stretch that we're in with all of the, the media ecology that I want to break up. So I, I wanted to ask you if you had listened to him and you, you're telling us you have, then I don't really? know if you have other, other so when you listen to him, Nathan, it was somebody else's tuning in and they made a point of turning it on. It was like yeah. part of the project was play it where un, unwelcome ears were subjected to it. Well, I think I listened to him for about a minute and a half on my own. It's one of those things where you put an album on and you know in the first, say, you know, minute that you're not going to like this. Give me, give me another album to listen to. Uh, some people apparently liked him. Remember, he called himself the truth detector. Okay. And he did him with such bravado, but he did it with that kind of uh, the complete confidence that tricks other people. He was a salesman for himself, just like Trump was a salesman for himself. Rush was a salesman for, for uh, himself by calling himself the truth detector. So we'll go into that through line in a moment, but I want to take us some stock here. The alliteration in that title he gave himself. That uh, When there's an alliteration, I always stop in my tracks and go, this is a very classic propagandizing technique. Truth detector? Yeah. Detector? Truth detector? Truth detector. It's alliteration there. It's enough of alliteration for me. So that sort of reinforces the, his job that he's doing. So the potency of his transgressions, I'm going to go out and call it, that uh, it's many decades. And I don't know when, the, his, when his dance with the former president the, the former guy, as he's now called, the uh, hashtag former guy, that um, it, when did they start tacking together in their dance? I wish I knew. I honestly, you know, I, I, Rush Limbaugh was, like I say, an entertainer I wanted nothing to do with. So uh, in the sense that I don't like Alice Cooper, I would know very little about him except to say what I've read about him and what little I've heard screamed by him through a wall in, a, in an office. And I've read that he said things like feminism was established to allow unattractive women easier access to the mainstream. I know he called, you know, women's lib folk feminazis. He yeah, was that stuck. A, a provocateur yeah. and he was trying to get under your skin. And, and he did. That's the other part of his popularity is because he offended people. So why do you think the counter message was never as effective? I mean, there isn't a, there isn't a comparable. Is there a host to Rush Limbaugh? Well, I think it has to do with the amygdala, as you were saying earlier. It has to do with uh, giving 
a mass of people with fear something to listen to. It's not that, you know, you're saying a counter message. So you're saying there's our side and there's their side. Right. And if you're saying that, why aren't there more liberal or progressive voices with the same popularity as Rush Limbaugh? Sometimes I think that might just be because liberal or progressive voices don't trust messages from just one person. Dispensed in the fashion, like yeah, it, yeah, yeah. They're less it's likely to, to fall for something. Not fall. I don't want to be that prejudiced, but they're less likely to be moved by uh, someone hurling insults at their opponent. They like it. I mean, they and they'll do it when it's somebody, say, like uh, uh, John Stewart. You know, it's a little bit lower key. But I, I don't think politically, and maybe I just haven't expo- been exposed to it, but I don't think that works uh, for the progressive mind as much. I, I think that there's at least more thinking as far as issues go within the masses of people who are pro- behind progressive ideas. The thinking for more right-wing ideas comes from being against something. At least that's the way it stands now. That's not the way it was in the past, conservative, liberal, but I think that's the way it is right now, that you have to make up an enemy on the right. On the left, as far as that goes, uh, it's you're trying to push a cause. Okay, or and maybe the, that you're, I, you're doing everything but saying nuance that there's that nuance <laughs> hasn't does is no match for yeah. attacking for the uh, real estate known as the amygdala that lobe of the brain that act that's activated with yeah. fear mongering. So and I also think that advertising is you know as far as why aren't our counter messages as effective is because um, given that the audience wants to hear yelling on the right. And given that it's easier, the market is looking for that kind of, of product. You know, the advertising dollars are looking for people to, to yell at their audience rather than to reason with their audience. Yes. He, uh, the, I, what can I say? So the, I want to then move along in the timeline. And I don't know if you were watching the last president's the last, his February 2020 State of the Union address. But I thought it was pretty tight theater when as a kind of air quote surprise that Rush Limbaugh was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I don't, Nathan, did you see that when it was happening in real time? No, I'm against watching any speeches by presidents. For the most part, I am. Unless it's just something so, you know, uh, that something's going to happen. State of the unions, as far as an address goes, uh, I think they should have never started it. Having a state of the union is fine. And for people who can read, I think that that's a good thing. It just turns the state of a union into pomp and circumstance rather than to anything important. Well, that's that's the point. That's what I'm saying. I'm getting to the point of it was it was played for all the theater with that surprise award. And I, I, I watched them because. I don't uh, 
trust anybody's analysis of it. That's how, <laughs> that's how pompous I am. But so well, that I, 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 I want to see it that I'm being pompous or that I'm a better. <laughs> Both. No, okay. no. That just that uh, yeah, it's good to not trust anybody's interpretation of anything when you have the opportunity to see it. But just in general, a state of the unions, if, if you present me with a, a, a paper with what you intend to do for the country and how you intend to get there, I'm willing to read it. I just don't want all that uh, ceremony. And, and uh, it's not just ceremony. There's, there's just so, so much gravitas and, and uh, kowtowing and that goes into this into the State of the Union, that it's really hard for anyone watching to sort it out. Yeah, you have, you'd be a very, back to the critical thinking, uh, critical yeah. listening of a Rush Limbaugh program and how to sort of, you know, critically view. And I, so, I, but I do want to get to the specifics of okay. that presidential medal of freedom. Rush Limbaugh is known publicly to have had a pretty advanced, I think it was lung cancer. Yeah, the and, day before he was, he said he was pretty much in. So then we have him up in the gallery of that chamber, the Senate, the House of Representatives chamber, that, wait a minute, the Senate or the House chamber, the bigger one, it's gotta be the House of Representatives to fit in everybody. So yes. th that he's there and sort of, and we have the then first lady who's ready to tie it. She's got the medal with her. So there's there's all this role playing, all this theater. And yeah. that really, that you could, you're, there's these two camps of reacting is this affirming for the, the tribe that supported the president in the White House then. And that, that they got all this kind of texture from that. And the rest of us had our, a totally revolted take on what are they doing deciding when they when and where and how and who gets this medal freedom what how does somebody what are the criteria for that and it was it was such a play that it it i mean it's like how the, when other awards are given some recipients of those awards want to turn them in because they don't want to be a part of that club anymore that was a, that was very problematic that yeah conferring of that award that night. Yeah, at the State of the Union, you don't do not hand out Presidential Medal of Freedom awards. It's it it was uh, very disappointing. Very disappointing that that award now is associated with um, a carnival barker. Given by a carnival barker. Yeah. Right. So Let's talk now, Nathan, about now that the, the cat's been out of the bag. The cat's out of the bag. The cat's had a lot of litters. So would you like to venture out, think big here, with any prescriptions for the media ecology that we're faced with here? Because, what do I think? Should, and, and in more than one conversation you and I've had about this, hmm. you put the onus on the consumer to figure out uh, how they're being manipulated by various media sources. But I'm always concerned with how pernicious the producer's capacity is to drive, drive a, a message by. I, I just don't think it's a fair fight. So I, I, I wanna hear what your prescription could be for <laughs> what we're dealing with. And it's a US media 
I'm talking about, I'm uh, not beyond because it's it's the media that we're most immediately influenced by and in the and Bobby in the wake of. Well, you're asking about the fairness doctrine and how I think that things can be uh, uh, on broadcast media. And now, you know, when when the Friends Doctrine was established, we were talking about a very small group of communicators. We were talking about, you know, the three networks and and some radio stations, but not like what we have today, which is huge. And to implement a fairness doctrine right now would be uh, would be an insane task. There, there's so many different outlets to have to monitor and then to actually have what uh, uh, a review of every single case of somebody not being fair on air, online, uh, would be nearly impossible. I, I know I, I say this all the time, but a, a lot of it has to do with just teaching civics. That's where I'm, that's where we're headed. I wanted to know yeah. if that's if that's all we've got left well, is civics and sort of critical media consuming kinds of, I don't know. I would say media ownership caps too. In other words, the monopolies are getting bad too. Media monopolies that, you know, one Rupert Murdoch can influence that many people is uh, that's got to stop. When you have someone like Roger Ailes, who was, you know, leading Fox News and you know, uh, dictating what people were thinking through that broadcast, that kind of uh, media ownership has got to stop. Also, uh, net neutrality. We've got to work toward that and, and uh, be sure that the, uh, again, it's the same thing, the media ownership, people who can uh, block information from coming to you have got to be stopped from doing that. And now that, you know, on the other side of that, and we've got ourselves in a real bind here when you have groups like, not groups, shouldn't say groups, when you have investors. QAnon. Oh, now, yeah. Okay. Talking about okay. you know, people who are making up the news. Uh, but at the same time, if you have civics and you have education, then people who are making up the news are going to have a smaller audience. And you just have to, I think, rely on that. If you if you have a fairness doctrine and you are forcing people to always respond with another side all the time, then like, for instance, uh, global warming, does that mean we have to have someone who's a uh, climate change denier every time we have someone who's talking about the dangers of global warming on? It's I, I just think the fairness doctrine ha had its time and it's we can't go back. And also to put more money into public uh, broadcasting too. I think that PBS for all its problems uh, has done a good job. And it's also uh, created a lot of programming that's entertainment rather than educational. But when it does try, when it goes for education, I think it does a good job. Well, I was going to bring up, though, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So I'm capturing yeah. the radio and the television platforms and their sponsorships when they when they cover social media and they introduce 
that, or they acknowledge the sponsor for yada yada NPR station includes Facebook and, and Amazon. So that is a kind of, there's some self-censoring going on. And that's, that's that gray area in our media ecology. Yeah. It's super gray. It's super, uh, it, it's very, and then with the increasingly, uh, increasing investments of any media platform by a hedge fund in an investment portfolio of some kind that we're uh, losing some leverage, Nathan, in the, the fairness and the, the open-ended part of clear thinking. So, so with, those, with those trends, that's, this is a taller order than it's a market, not a legislative fix. And that, that leverage isn't very, very equitable there for listeners versus investors and owners. No. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it isn't very equitable. And the, the only way I see out of it, that's why I say education. Okay. Sometimes it's a, uh, oh, it's just been beaten to death. You know, if only people were smarter, they wouldn't do that. That's not necessarily true. But if you have, if this, something as simple as the scientific method I don't think you should be able to vote unless you can, <laughs> unless you know, have been uh, educated in what the scientific method is. And I know that sounds, you know, what uh, is it I don't know. of me to say that? It, but it, well, that has that has implications, and there are some <laughs> very seasoned voters that they're very street smart. They really understand things, but they're not as, as their education is not as sophisticated as that scientific method literacy. And they're really, they really are on their voting game. They know what they're doing. They understand. The scientific method is, is not that complicated. You know, it's just a matter of testing and, and, and looking at your results and peer review. And peer review, I mean, just going out and talking to other people. That's all for when it comes down to, to getting an education and to making your uplifting yourself from just listening to what some jackass with a mic in front of them, like me or Rush Limbaugh is saying, <laughs> is just to go out and, and find out for yourself and learn how to test your theories and have some doubt about what it is that you do. Now, you know, it, it sounds like you're preaching when you talk like that, but I, I think just to go back to why our messages aren't as effective, I think it's because we don't have enough enthusiasm about the wonders of the world that we inhabit as people who believe in science and people who believe in education, that it, it's a much better world so from my perspective than it is for a person who is believes in what Russia Limbaugh is screaming at them at the radio, in the radio? So to replace then an effort on trying to build a fairness, rebuild a fairness doctrine, yeah. it sounds like you're saying there's two parts here, is that there is a need to raise the whole, just that level, the culture of educating our general public, the culture of educating, and then the culture of media, any stripe of media, to talk about policy 
over politics. And I know how hard that is when I've had the opportunity to sit back with media covering, we'll say, a statewide political convention. And there are young people, Nathan, new mainstream media contributors, and they were all in a circle about what they were going to do. It was a a horse race. It was a sort of a, a scandal. They were all trying to break that news. And I confronted them with, why are you guys following what this kerfuffle is inside that that campaign why aren't you just why aren't you honing in on the policy the, what, what that candidate is supporting and they just wouldn't let go they wouldn't they, they had their jaws locked on that they wouldn't let go so those moving parts educating the, the broader body politic making edu- a, an education culture so we can join our society the other what would be considered less sort of uh, societies with lower standards of living where those countries are known to have a more of a concern about policy over politics. Yes, I I couldn't agree more. You hit it on the head and it's not an easy task, but it's something we all can do. It's, It's not an easy task because it's so complex and it's a matter of reaching out to people rather than just making yourself uh, the center of it all. It's a lot of work. Well, uh, thank you. This has been a real pleasure. I've been wanting to do something with you for a very long time on my radio platform, Nathan Callahan. Thanks for your time on Ask a Leader today. Thank you, Claudia. Thanks for having me on. My guest was Nathan Callahan, writer, critic, and radio host, including here at KUCI. Thank you once again. Well, that's my wrap. For next week's show, Dr. Josh Grill, director of UCI's Institute for Memory Impairment and Neurological Disorders, returns to the show with some promising results in recent clinical trials toward treating Alzheimer's and other dementia. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Masks, because we care. We do.